This morning's scripture passage is from Matthew 20, verses 17 through 34. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him and her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit on my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be the great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave." Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting at the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Amen. Be seated. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. I... Uh, I want to acknowledge, again, those who were at camp this week. Uh, that is a tough job. Uh, the counselors, uh, Jamie called me, Pastor Jamie, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he said, uh, I have a proposition for you. You can either preach or you can be a chaperone with the kids at camp. Not only am I here preaching, but I mowed his lawn and washed all of his cars. No, I, no, I didn't. But I, I, I think it's great that uh, we have individual staff and volunteers who uh, will take the kids to camp, teach them the Word of God, and, uh, and grow them in maturity. So let's just give applause to those people who did that. that Well, well done. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that we can call you Father because of the work that has been done by your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for lavishing your grace and mercy on us. Thank you for setting our feet out of the sand and on the rock. And Father, I thank you that in you, in Christ, we have hope that we never had before and we have a new life.
Father, I, I, as we were singing the song a minute ago, uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. I, I pray that that is all of our prayer this morning. That we would use our life for Your glory. That we would use our life to Your honor. And that we would use our life to fulfill the purposes that You have given us. Father, I thank you that we can participate in your plan. And Lord, we long for the coming of Jesus and to live with you and him forever. That is our dearest prayer. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking today, what I, I, this whole section of scripture is in three different sections and uh, it, it starts out with a few verses, then you have in the middle a lot of meat, and then you end up with a few verses. So it's kind of a sandwich, and uh, it's a lot of material. But I think the overarching theme for this entire passage is Jesus the servant leader. Jesus the servant leader. And I, when I was reading the very first verse in this passage, where it says, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And we know he was going out of Jericho. Jericho is a very ancient city. And Jesus had been there before. It wasn't new to him. He, would, he had been to Jerusalem. And we know at least a half a dozen times before. So that wasn't new. But everything about this was different. Everything about this had to be profoundly intense for Jesus. Uh, maybe not as much for the disciples because, as we're going to see, they didn't fully grasp how heavy this situation was in this particular moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. So as he's going up out of Jericho on the road to Jerusalem, it literally says he went up. And, and you are going up if you leave Jericho going to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in about a 15-mile stretch, there's a 3,400-foot elevation change uphill. Uphill. I walk occasionally. I may even stroll. <laughs> I ran once when a dog chased me. <laughs> but I have never, ever walked an elevation like this. I, my, my daughter, one of them, runs ultra marathons, and I actually saw her run a 50-mile race where there were elevation changes like this. She's phenomenal. But I've never done this. And Jesus was doing it now, not just, not just in the physical realm was it difficult, but there was a spiritual and an emotional and psychological perspective to all that was happening that had never been there like this before. As we're about to see as we go on into the passage, he's about to tell his disciples how this is going to end. 
And with every step, I can, I can picture this, with every step he took going out of Jericho up that first very steep, long incline up to a razorback ridge with no trees in the blistering sun, a deep canyon on one side, with every step he thought about what was ahead. With every step, he would be thinking about his betrayal. With every step, he would be thinking about his arrest. He would be thinking about his trial. He would be thinking about his conviction. He would be thinking about his sentence. He would be thinking about being tortured by the Gentiles. He would be thinking about crucifixion and death with every single step. But praise God, he would also be thinking about his resurrection. He would be thinking about the redemption that we have in him because of his faithfulness to the Father's will. That's a walk. He went up from Jericho toward Jerusalem. Now, let's look at the passage and look at this prediction of his death. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day day. Now, that was the third time that he had told them this. He told them this after he had asked Peter in chapter 16, after he had asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed him and affirmed that answer. And then immediately, Jesus told him this prediction. And Peter's response, it says, you know, he rebuked Jesus, said, that can't be. And then Jesus turned right back and rebuked him for saying what he said, because this was the plan. Again, in chapter 17 of Matthew, he gave the second prediction just like this. And it said that the disciples were disturbed. Rightly so. And then here, he gives this third prediction. And look at the question that they have immediately after he said that he's going to be crucified and will be raised on the third day. Look at the question. You won't find it. Because there isn't one. There's not a question. There's not a comment. It doesn't say anyone was disturbed. They have, as we can tell, almost no response. Nothing recorded. Matthew's meticulous, but there's nothing recorded. It goes, it, it's contrary to what we would think. 
uh, educational theory says the more exposure we have to a particular material, the more exposure we have, the more likely we are to grasp and understand the material. But this was the third time that he had said this, and it almost seems the opposite. It seems like that they have the least response after the third time. Their understanding is just not demonstrated here. And it would really, really be easy to point fingers and say, oh, they must be dense, they must be thick, what is wrong with them? Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't ask them, why, why, why don't you get this? He knew why they didn't get it. And I think there are a, a few reasons for that. One, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. It violates expectation. Let's, let's demonstrate. One, two, three, four. What comes next? What? Is everybody awake? Five. No. No. One, two, three, four, polyester. That's wrong on multiple levels. <laughs> polyester, one, two, three, four, polyester. That doesn't fit. And that is exactly what they were thinking. It does not fit. It is inconceivable about everything we know about the Christ, the Messiah. It is inconceivable to believe that he is going to be betrayed, arrested, convicted, tortured, crucified, and die. No way. So yes, sometimes our, our expectations can be so violated that it causes this sense of disbelief. It, it just can't be. And Jesus didn't scold them. He's obviously compassionate by not doing so, but we get a little glimpse of what's going on in, in John chapter 13. And the setting is uh, they're in the upper room and Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. And he says, what I'm doing you do not understand now. But afterwards, you'll understand. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. This is about his betrayal. I'm telling you now before it takes place that when it does play, take place, you will believe that I am he. What I'm doing now, you don't understand, but you'll understand later. I, I, this happens to me all the time in my spiritual life. I, I have encountered things over my life that while they are happening in the thick of things, I didn't always see exactly what was coming next. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times I didn't. And you know what? I think that's merciful because I think God very intentionally doesn't always show us the end at the beginning. 
Have any of you ever started down a spiritual journey, a spiritual road, and you'd made commitments and you said, I, I, I'm, I'm going this direction, and, and you begin that direction, and then there is this curveball. And you're challenged more than you had ever expected. And you may even go, what is happening? Didn't anticipate this. I didn't think it was going to go this way. But God continued to be faithful and he got you through it and he grew you through it. And on the other side, you go, oh, I see. Lord, I see what you're doing now. Now. Well, that's, that's where they were. They didn't get it all. And that's okay. I can identify with them. So that was his prediction. And then he begins to reveal his purpose in verse 20 through 28. He, he talks about his purpose. And I, I love this story. When we see stories like this, we see the humanity of the people in the Scripture. Sometimes I think we, we go, oh, these were these people. And I read a story like this, and I said, no, this is my people. This, this is me. Look in verse 20. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with their sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Now that's funny. It was bring your mother to work day. <laughs> and it's a mama. I, I'd rather say that than mother. It was a mama. And it was a mama being a mama. Because that's what mamas do. It's like, and I don't, I don't know if y'all have ever heard, uh, Garrison Keeler was on Prairie Home Companion, and Garrison Keeler would talk about the tales from Lake Wobegon. Did you ever hear those? And either at the front or the end of his story, he would weave a tapestry uh, in, in story, and it was beautiful. But it would begin or end with, Welcome to Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the children are above average. <laughs> I have yet to meet a mama who didn't believe that Junior was above average. <laughs> now, you know, Junior may be out there putting rocks in his mouth, but she looks at it and saying, oh... He's, he's in the gifted program. <laughs> oh. And, and that's, what, that's what was happening here. In the gifted program. Well, she, she says, and, and Jesus looks at her and says, you just don't know what you're asking. You don't get it. And not only is he looking at her, he's looking at James and John. And he asked them, said, are you able to drink from my cup. Are you able, he didn't say this, are you able to drink the humiliation that I'm about to suffer? Are you able to drink the suffering? 
that I'm about to suffer? Are you able to die like I'm about to die? And so quickly, are you able to drink from my cup? And they say, yes, yes, Lord. And he says, yeah, you are. You will drink from my cup. James would be beheaded. John would be imprisoned first and then exiled to Patmos. They would drink from that cup, but they didn't understand it right then. And then we finally get a response. Didn't get a response from the other disciples when Jesus foretold his death, but now we get a response from the other ten when they hear that James and John and Mom have requested these special seats for special sons. And it says, and when they heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were indignant. Now, if I say James and John, what's the other inner circle disciple? Peter. Peter wasn't, wasn't there. James and John had been accustomed to Peter being there, but they had, they had motive for not including Peter. They were jumping ahead. Peter knew it. The other disciples knew it. There was somewhat of a jockeying for position. And they were indignant, not just that James and John had done that, but that they had beaten them to, probably asking the same kind of question. So, we go to the section now where Jesus begins teaching them a different way to think because he's, he's still revealing his purpose, but he has to correct some of this faulty thinking. Look in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall not be so among you. Jesus begins this little section with saying, okay, here's what not to do. Then he says, here's what to do. And then he finishes out this section by saying, and here's how much you do it. But first he begins by saying, don't do it like the Gentiles. There's something in that spirit of the Gentiles that is not, it, it's not even remotely spiritual. It's not even remotely godly. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 2.16 it, there's a statement there that describes exactly this kind of thinking. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. What James and John had wanted, probably what the other disciples wanted, was very much like the Gentiles. It was a little narcissistic. Their, their motivation had a little touch of narcissism. It had some desire for a position of power. It had a desire for a position of wealth because if you're sitting on the right and left hand of a king, 
There's going to be wealth. There, there is a position of fame, prominence, and recognition. And those are all things of the world. Our motives matter. Motives matter. Yes, it is good to adhere to our traditions and our rituals of the faith when it enhances our faith. But if our motives are skewed, if our service is for another reason other than loving God and loving others, then it skews the reason that we serve. And it skews the outcome. People can tell when we lack genuineness, right? So, Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles. And then in verse 27, he says, but whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whosoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's, that is revolutionary and countercultural. That's as much a violation of expectation as they had about the possibility of Jesus dying. He said, do not model your service after everything you know about service. Don't model after the Gentiles. Don't model after the flesh, but model after the spirit. Uh, Henry Ironside is an author that I, I enjoy reading. And in his notes on Matthew, Ironside said, in the heavenly kingdom, it is meekness, and unselfish service that have the preeminence. To prefer others before oneself. To minister in grace rather than to rule in power. To exemplify the spirit of our royal leader. Preferring others over ourselves. Now, if, if we begin trying to wrap our head around that and think, well, what would that look like? Jesus tells them in verse 28 exactly what it looks like. It says, even as the Son of Man, even. So if you want to know what this looks like, it looks exactly like this. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Austin, that's... That's at least two sermons worth right there. To give his life a ransom for many. In there, we have the substitutionary atonement. What we deserved, Jesus took. What I could not make right, I could not make reparations for my sin but Jesus could he atoned for me and for you if you have faith in Christ the substitutionary atonement he, there's there in that statement there's propitiation God is satisfied God looks at what Jesus Christ did as our servant leader as our suffering servant, as our Savior, he looked at that and said, I'm satisfied. Debt paid. 
We cannot overstate that. We cannot overthink that. We can't be thankful enough for that. That a holy, righteous God who demands holiness looks at us and is satisfied because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. And then we have redemption. We have been redeemed. Many of you in the room are not nearly old enough to remember SNH green stamps. Stephen, I know you and I are. You'd go to the grocery store, you'd buy groceries, you'd go to the checkout, you'd pay $5 for 15 baskets of groceries, and then they would give you the registered green stamps. And you would take your green stamps home, slap them in a book, and when you had, you know, 37 books completed, filled up, you would take it to the redemption center and take it and get a useless plastic item. <laughs> redemption center. Jesus is the model of redemption center. We have been redeemed, we have been bought back, we have been purchased. We are not our own. We have been purchased with a price. All of that right there. Jesus, our model. I also love reading a book, and I highly recommend this for anyone who's in service in the local church, Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. I've taught it many times in congregations. Spiritual Leadership, J. Oswald Sanders. He says, Leadership is one thing. Leadership is influence. You, if I ask, are you a leader? Somebody said, no, I'm not a leader. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not this in the congregation. I'm not that in the congregation. You know, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just a regular. If you're a live, breathing Christian, you are a leader. Because leadership is influence. If you're a mom, a dad, you influence your children. If you're in a relationship with any other human being, you will exert influence of some kind or another. We are designed as Christians to have influence and a good influence that we can have through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look on our, on our banners. We, what's the second word? Proclaim. Huh, is that influence? Yes. We proclaim him. What's the next word? Admonishing. Is that influence? Are we exerting influence when we do that? Absolutely. And we're what? Teaching. Influence. On our banner, it screams to us every single time we sit here, Christians must have influence that the world desperately needs. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. Influence. Oh, I'm not sure if God wants me to have influence. See, Jesus looked and said, huh, you're salt. Jesus looked at us and said, you're light. Jesus expects us to have that kind of an influence on people around us. Then Sanders said, 
If the world is to hear the church's voice, if the world is to hear the church's voice, let me ask you, do you think that the world today needs to hear the church's voice? Anyone besides me turn on the news or read a newspaper and go, I never believed I would be seeing this. I never believed that behaviors, attitudes would be what they are. I never believed that. And the easiest thing in the world, the easiest thing in the world is to look at them because that's what we tend to do. That's a, a natural thing to do. That's a human thing to do, but we're called to something higher. The easiest thing it is to do is to look at them and shake our fist and be angry. That's, that would be influence, but not a godly influence, not a spiritual influence. Jesus looked at them, sinners, us, and he had pity on us, and he served us, and he sacrificed himself for us, and he spoke truth. He spoke truth that is still being spoken today, and he spoke truth that is just as powerful today as it was when he spoke it, and he spoke truth that you and I can speak and be salt and light in a world that desperately needs us. The world needs to hear the voice of the church. And sometimes we're being deafeningly silent. So Jesus called us to this. Sanders said, if you're if you're if we're gonna if the world is gonna hear the voice of the church, leaders are needed who are three things: authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial. Now, I, when I looked at that, I thought, that, oh, I love that. That's great. But I'm going to change the order. I think it needs to be spiritual first, then authoritative, then sacrificial. It needs to be spiritual because to have any kind of an impact on the world, to serve the world well, I have to have a well-established relationship with the Lord. I have to. Otherwise, I'm just out espousing some philosophy like everybody else. I have to be grounded. I have to be rooted. And if, if I'm going to speak and address anything in the world in a loving, meaningful way, I'd better be grounded spiritually. Doesn't mean I have to know everything. But I have to know in whom I believed. I have to be a spiritual follower to have spiritual power. Secondly, it has to be authoritative. And I, I, I thought about that authoritative, author, not authoritarian, authoritative. And I jotted down confidence with integrity. Confidence with integrity. Have you ever known anyone who was so confident that confidence oozed from them and it kind of puddled up and looked like arrogance? Ever seen that? 
confidence puddled up and it looked more like pride than confidence. So confidence with integrity. And that comes from us knowing the word of God because it's the word of God. It's the truth spoken in love that influences the world. Spiritually connected to God, speaking the truth and love with authoritative words, and then lastly, sacrificial. And it's, it's this easy. Willingness to pay the price. To spend yourself for others. Will you spend your most precious commodity? Your most precious commodity is not your house, it's not your car, it's not your bank account. Your most precious commodity is the life that Jesus gave you, that he redeemed, that he set on a new path. Are you willing to spend that commodity sacrificially? Lastly, Jesus revealed his pattern First it was the prediction, then it was the purpose, and then it was his pattern. Verse 29, it starts this little section that talks about the blind beggars. We know from Mark, Bartimaeus was one of those. And they, when they see Jesus approaching, they cry, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now these guys, these guys may not have known a lot. To be blind put them at a distinct disadvantage, particularly in this kind of a culture. But they had heard things. They had heard reports. And hope had begun to well up in them. And when they had an opportunity, they shouted, have mercy on us, Son of David. They did it twice. They were shunned by people around them. But Jesus heard them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And immediately they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. You know, I, I, we have to be brave enough to say that too. Lord, let my eyes be open. But they shouted out, Lord, let our eyes be open. And then the scripture says, he had pity on them and touched them and healed them. And they followed him. What a beautiful pattern that is. And it followed the pattern of Jesus' entire ministry. Jesus' entire ministry was healing people who were crippled, casting demons out of demon-possessed people, feeding hungry people, rubbing elbows with sinners, raising the dead. That was his pattern of ministry and service. I'll leave you with a verse from 1 Peter 2.21. For to this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's an old little book written in his steps that came partially from that verse. 
Jesus left an example so we would follow in his steps. Servant leadership, sacrificial service, considering others more than ourselves. That's a challenge. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the example of our Savior. Thank you for showing us exactly how you want us to live with integrity as Christians. And Father, I pray that as we move in our direction of servant leadership, that through the Holy Spirit, you might bring spiritual fruit that only you can bring. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.